by him. In fact, those things echo exactly what we read in Titus just a few minutes ago and what we'll see later. But when we start our, our understanding or our knowledge of the city of Ephesus in the scriptures, it's the Apostle Paul passing through Ephesus on his way from Corinth. And he leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila. There they convert a, what we think of as maybe a young man or a very capable and able man, Apollos. And then in Acts 19, the Apostle Paul returns. And he's going to spend years in the city of Ephesus working with that congregation. After he is run out of town, he goes off to Greece, back to, to Macedonia, to Philippi, maybe to Corinth. And then he comes back to Asia Minor. But he does not return to Ephesus. He comes in Acts 20 to the city of Troas. And then as he makes his way to Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he calls the elders of Ephesus to him. This is the same Ephesus that uh, Priscilla and Aquila worked in in Acts 18, that the Apostle Paul worked in for, for uh, two years in Acts 19, and the same congregation to whom he wrote the, the epistle of the Ephesians. And so he calls the elders to himself in Acts 20. And in rehearsing what he had done with them in that time, in Acts 20, verse 17 through 35, he says something that I want to draw your attention to that I believe is very, um, at least interesting to our study of the grace of God. It's found in Acts 20 and verse 24. Acts 20 and verse 24. He said, but I hold my life, or I hold not my life, of any account as dear unto myself, so that I may accomplish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, especially those things which he was called to do in Acts chapter 9, whenever he was baptized and commissioned as an apostle, as we read about in Galatians 1. To testify the gospel of the grace of God. When the apostle Paul preached the gospel, when anyone preached the gospel, they were and we are preaching the grace of God. The gospel is the gospel of grace. And if we want to better understand the gospel of grace, and we won't take our time necessarily to do this tonight, but we were to read Acts 20 verses 17 through 35, we would see the gospel of grace was a gospel that preached the counsel or the word of God. Acts 20 verse 27. The gospel of grace was centered on the death of Christ. Acts 20 and verse 28. It extended from heaven the kingdom of God, Acts 20, 28, as well as Acts 20 and verse 25. The gospel of grace included the Christian's inheritance, Acts 20 and verse 32. I commend you to God and the word of his, word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. And then number five, the grace of God includes extending grace to others. Even as our Lord Jesus said, it is better to give or more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20 and verse 35. And so when he preached the gospel of grace in, in Ephesus, it was the gospel that was the word of God centering on the death of Christ, including and, and lifting forward the church, calling the Christians to see their home in heaven, but also to live gracefully on this earth. So from this context... I see that the grace of God centers on the crucifixion, the death of Christ. Of course, His resurrection. The grace of God is clearly evident to us through the counsel or the Word of God. The grace of God provides 
for from the grace of God, God provides a family, a church, a home, a kingdom, a body that belongs to Him, and yet you and I get to enjoy the blessings and benefits of being in it. Not just the spiritual blessings, but also the blessings that we can enjoy through the fellowship with one another, 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 10. The grace of God provides us an inheritance or an eternal home, and the grace of God expects us to be graceful unto others. You see, Paul had taught the gospel of grace, Acts 20, 24. So when he writes concerning the grace of God in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, this is not a new topic, and it's not to you and I either. If we've been saved, if we've been redeemed, if we've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, the grace of God is not something new. It's just something that we better understand and also better seek to apply. Or how does the grace of God impact or affect my life? It is that same grace that the Apostle Paul wrote, you are saved by grace, Ephesians 2.5, or by grace have you been saved, Ephesians 2.8. It is central and key to our salvation. And so that brings us then to Titus 2. Now how? Because in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, the grace of God is explained in a way that it really isn't in, in any other text in the New Testament. Now, if you were to read the rest of the, the New Testament, you would get all of the elements that we find. But in Titus 2, 11 through 14, they're jam-packed together. And if we want to understand the eternal and infinite grace of God from His revealed Word, there may be no better passage to understand the grace of God than what we would find. It is this grace that the gospel centers around. It is this grace that saves us. This same grace is taught to us in Titus chapter 2. So join me if you would in Titus 2 and let's read these verses together before we discuss them. Titus 2 beginning in verse 11, for the grace of God hath appeared. That word hath appeared is from uh, the root word where we get uh, epiphany from, the Greek word. And so the grace of God hath appeared, we'll see that word again in verse 13. The grace of God hath appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to the intent that in denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory or the manifestation, same word, the epiphany, of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good works. What do I learn about the grace of God? As I comb through this text, forwards and backwards, reconsider it, I see ten things that I learn about the grace of God. Now those are not the points of our lesson, because I would never have a ten point lesson. I would, but I want you to notice these ten things by way of introduction as we, as we think about the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. So first, I see that the grace of God is present. It's here. It hath appeared. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know that the grace of God did not first appear when Jesus was born or when Jesus died on the cross. In fact, the grace of God has been, well, it's been in existence as long as God has been in existence. So it is eternal as part of His character and His nature. We see that word grace first used in our English Bibles in Genesis chapter 6 when Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of God. 
But what does it mean when we see the grace of God hath appeared? You see, in Jesus Christ, the, the grace of God embodied, that characteristic embodied, took on flesh. It, it, it is in Christ that we see everything the Father has to offer. Because when Jesus came, what did he bring? Grace and truth. John 1.17, because he was the exegesis of the Father, John 1.18. The image of his brightness, Hebrews 1 and verse 3. According to Colossians 1 and 2, it was, him, it was in Christ that the image or the express image of God was to be found. And so in, in Christ, we have the grace of God manifest perfectly. And ultimately, we'll see that in his death. The power of God manifests in his resurrection, Romans 1 and verse 4. But the grace of God is an epiphany. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word epiphany. I don't know that I have ever used it except kind of in a joking manner. But I had a high school senior English teacher. And this might be dangerous, but where I came from, it was up in North Texas, it was not dangerous. But he called an epiphany an Aggie salute in literature. And what is an Aggie salute? He says that's where you go, oh. Now, I don't know. We might have some Aggies here. I, I don't know. I know that we're further south. I, I'm from north of Fort Worth, and so I have to be careful, I guess. But that's what he said. That, that's always stuck with me. You see, whenever we were learning high school English, you read through these works, and it's not until maybe the end that you go, oh, that's what they were talking about. Now, if you were like me, you realized what the author meant in maybe Shakespeare's King Lear after you got the grade for your test. And you go, oh, that's what he meant. But that's the grace of God. It's been there all along. But now if we want to use our English word, it's an epiphany. We see Jesus and we go, oh, that's the perfection of God's grace. Now we could take this with any other characteristic. What about God's love? It's been there all along. But when you look at Jesus, you go, oh, that's what perfect love looks like. That's what perfect holiness looks like. That's what he's saying here with grace. The grace of God hath appeared or hath been made manifest now in the person and the work of Jesus. So God's grace is present. It's here. Number two, God's grace is redemptive. So the grace of God hath appeared, look at this, bringing salvation. You see, the grace of God has something to offer me. I have so very little to offer God. I don't. Even after I've done all that I am able to do, I'm still just an unprofitable servant. God does not need to be served like, well, we live in Asia right now. And some of the gods in the street, they need to be served so that they might have food to eat. And they might have money to sustain themselves in whatever realm that they, the, the local superstition believes that God lives in. The God of heaven and earth does not need to be served in this way. I have so very little to offer God, but God has so very much to offer me. The grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation. The work of Christ is redemptive in its nature. It's not just academic, but he truly came to seek and to save the lost. He had a purpose to do the will of his Father, to, to, to go about bringing people into his fold, John 4, 34. 
My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord might send workers into the harvest. And he came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19 and verse 10. The work of Christ is redemptive. That's what we discussed in our invitation. Titus 2 and verse 14. The center of the grace of God is the cross. Number three. The grace of God is extensive. Bringing salvation to all or to all mankind. You see, the grace of God is not limited in this regard. It's not that when Christ died, there were only a select few for whom he died, at least not in one sense. And we'll attempt to clear this up in verse 14 and 15. But the grace of God is extensive. It reaches out into the entire world. And so all have that grace brought at their doorstep. I want, to, I want you to imagine it in this way. There is a gift from God. And I, instead of thinking it as a gift from God, I want you to think of it as a gift from maybe a neighbor. Or better yet, a gift from you to your neighbors. I want you to imagine those people, maybe the 10 or 12 or 20 homes that are closest to yours. And I want you to imagine you taking a gift, maybe a, a, a basket with some baked goods or cured meats or homemade salsa or rice. I, as, like I said, I've been in Asia. It's, it's what's on my mind, Carrie, rice, you know. And so whatever it is, you, you take this to your neighbor and you lay it at their doorstep. But you don't do it based on anything. You, you offer it to everyone you place that gift before every single house, maybe 10, 20, maybe you can do even more. Now, that's God's grace. It's been laid at the doorstep of every man. Does that mean everyone will be saved? Well, does everyone have to receive your gift? Does everyone have to take it? Someone might look at that and might think that, that some type of prank was being pulled on them and they, they might just throw it away. Someone might step by it. Someone might use their back door instead of their front. For all kinds of reasons, the, the grace, your grace, might be rejected by your neighbors. That's the case with God's grace as well. But it's extensive. It's gone forward to every man. It has not been limited to color or to nationality. It does not know national boundaries. It does not stop at one border or one river or one mountain range or one ocean. You see, it extends across all men, all women, everywhere. That's God's grace. It's extensive. Number four, God's grace is instructive. For the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation unto all men, instructing us. The grace of God, by its nature, teaches. Now, that's not a normal lesson that you would hear in the religious world today. The grace of God is seen simply as a free gift. And in some ways it is. It's a conditional gift. But it's, the gift of God is also an instructive gift. If the grace of God centers around the cross, has the cross ever been used to teach in all the scriptures? Well, of course it has. I don't know what passage is your favorite. Maybe mine is Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5 and going through verse 11. Have this mind in you which also existed in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Or he did not consider it worth holding on to, a thing to be grasped, what the American standard says. But he emptied himself, he took on the form of a servant, he, he became in the likeness of man, and he became obedient to death, 
yea, death on the cross. And because of this, God gave him a name higher than every other name, an exalted name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ was Lord, the glory of God the Father. You see, that passage, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, is used to teach. Why? Because the grace of God is instructive. And if the grace of God centers around the cross, not only does the cross bring and offer redemption or salvation or justification or forgiveness, not only is it a picture of God's mercy, but it's also what he expects us to do. Have this mind in you which also existed in Jesus Christ. God's grace is not something just to be enjoyed. Should we enjoy it? Yes, but it's not something just to be enjoyed. God's grace is not something just to be imagined. God's grace is something that is meant to teach. Number five, God's grace is conditional. Instructing us the intent that denying worldliness and ungodliness, worldly lust and ungodliness, we should or we ought to live. You see, there is a conditional promise with the grace of God. And it's always been this way with God. You see, just as that gift were placed at your doorstep or your neighbor's, there are still some conditions to enjoying it. For instance, you might have to take it to open it, to unfold the basket, to see what's inside. You might need to get that within a certain time period uh, or else the, maybe the, the animals might get it or the, the sun or the heat. We understand that, that promises are conditional. And as we read the scriptures, we know that's the case. God's grace is conditional. And so number six, we see that condition is uh, that God's grace is demanding. It expects a change in lifestyle that we, in verse 12, deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and we live soberly, righteously, and godly. In this text, that's five conditions. Now, those are general or very broad it's not five steps where you say, okay, I've rejected worldly lust today, check. It doesn't work that way. The, the grace of God is not earned in that way. But it is appreciated or it is obtained through responding to his conditional offer. And so God's grace is demanding. There are some in our religious world, there are some in the world in general that believe that we can come as we are to God. And I'm okay with that. But you can never come to God as you are and expect to be received as you are. You see, God has always expected a change of people. Whenever God appeared to Moses in a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, as, as Moses approached the bush and, and he wondered what was it, the voice from heaven, the voice from the bush belonging to heaven, take off your shoes for this is holy ground. You see, uh, an unholy person needs to change or alter or go through some condition in order to approach a holy God. That's what the Levitical sacrifices were all about. You see, as a sinful man, I did not come before God except with blood. I could come as I was as far as whatever I had eaten that day, as long as it wasn't unclean. Whatever I was wearing necessarily, unless I was a priest and had specific garments to wear. But you see, my heart could not come to God unchanged. I had, to, I had to respond to the conditional offer of God's grace because grace, God's grace is demanding. Number seven, God's grace is anticipative. 
It's hopeful. God's grace looks forward. Bringing salvation to to all men, instructing us, notice verse 13, that we should look for the blessed hope and the epiphany, the appearing, the manifestation of the glory of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That day, that day that is coming, the day of the Lord that will come as a thief in the night, where Jesus will return with his holy angels bringing vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. When this world will be consumed with a fervent heat and the elements will be melted from the eyes of man and before the eyes of God, 2 Peter 3 beginning in verse 9, there's a day coming when the trump of God will sound and the voice of the archangel is described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. You see, that day for the Christian is not a day of fear. It is not a day of terror. It's not a day of dread. It's a day that we look forward to in anticipation. You see, the day of judgment, because of the grace of God, is not a day of anxiety for me. It's a day of anticipation. I look for it. I look forward to it. I long for it. The day when the redeemed of all ages can be gathered together before the throne of God and there enjoy the blessing of heaven together the grace of God or God's grace is is hopeful it looks forward notice number next I think I said seven this might be seven it might be eight I've lost count you probably have two that's okay God's grace is expensive it cost the death of Christ God's grace did not cost the death of animals You see, Hebrews 9 and verse 22 teaches us that all things must be redeemed or or sin must be remitted by blood. But that the blood of bulls and goats was not worthy or capable. It did not have the value to redeem the sins of mankind once for all, Hebrews 10.4. It required that the God of heaven himself take on flesh, Philippians 2.5, John 1.14. That he might have a body like his brethren, Hebrews 10.6-9. It behooved him, according to the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 2, to be made like unto his brethren, to have a body that could be offered, even according to the Old Testament prophecy, as is shown to us in uh, especially 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But God's grace was, was and is expensive. You see, it might be, I think some have said that salvation is free, but it's not cheap. That's not new with me, but I think that's a good way of explaining the salvation of God. You see, it's offered to all mankind. And we respond through simple obedience, but the cost of God's grace was greater than anything this world has seen, this world has known. It was greater than the wealth that could fill every bank, every home, every storehouse, every barn in every country that has ever been known. That is God's grace Because it was extended, not just in Christ coming to this earth, but ultimately in his death. Number next to last. God's grace is personal. Look at that in in Titus 2 and verse 14. So Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, expensive, and purify unto himself a people for his own possession. For the grace of God... Though it, is exclu- or though it is extensive, it goes to all men, it is also exclusive to those who obey. Those who conditionally follow the will of God. 
And so God's grace then becomes very personal in this way. Because if you respond willingly to God's grace, you become part of His people. We own him. He owns us. We own Him. We can own Him in one way, but not in a, a possessive way, not in a sovereign way. We can claim Him, but He owns us. He will vouch for us. Christ will confess us, Matthew 10, 28-32. God will call us a part of His body, having added us to the church, Acts 2 and verse 47. A people that belong to Him, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 9. Revelation 1, 5, and 6. And so this is personal for God. Because when I respond to the expensive gift through my, uh, through my obedience and faithfulness, longing for the, the hope that I are longing with hope for that which is in the future, God owns me. It's personal. His own possession. And then number 10, it's exclusive. The grace of God is exclusive. And we see that right there in verse 14 as well. And so if you saw those, want those, need those, God's grace is present, redemptive, extensive, instructive, conditional, demanding, anticipative or hopeful, expensive, personal, and exclusive. Now, that's introduction. Because we want to focus on the topic assigned, which was God's grace is amazing because it brings salvation to all men. And that was, I think, point three, right? And so looking at Titus 2.11... With the last maybe 10 minutes that we have, I want you to think about that. The extensive nature of God's grace, that it brings salvation to all men. What makes God's grace amazing is that it brings salvation to all men. When we see this, when we read this, when we teach this and are taught by this passage, Titus 2.11, I want us to keep three things in mind. Three things in mind. So this is the sermon, three points. All right, Just three. I would never do ten. Three points, and you can't add the first ten, so this is not a 13-point sermon, just ten. Just three. Number one, if God's grace brings salvation to all men, then that shows me the universal nature of man's sin. We're familiar with the passages in Romans 3, right? We know Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. We know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We probably know Romans 5 and verse 12 that sin has been passed to all men and so has death. Okay. So sin has a universal aspect. And usually the things which, um, which bind us together are good. You say, well, we all share this in common. And that's a good thing. So often in our world, right, we, we divide over things which we, have, which we have differences. In the church, of course, we come together in this common blood. But I want you to think about sin because it is a common, but it's not a unifier. Because it unifies us against God. Think about these verses. In 1 John 3 and verse 4, sin is described as a transgression of the law of God or lawlessness. So if all men sin, that means all men, all women, all mankind, after an age of accountability, break God's law. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you. Maybe it's something we're, we're familiar with. Maybe it's something that, that we're used to. Hopefully it's not something we're comfortable with. 
The picture that Isaiah gives in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 is that sin actually separates us between uh, ourselves and God. That's a problem. You see, if, if reconciliation is God bringing me back to Him, then sin is me pushing Him away. That's, that's a problem. And so this is a plague which all men share. It's not a good thing. In describing sin in, in that same book, Isaiah, but in chapter 1, in giving an overview of sin, a passage we're so familiar with, he says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. For though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. For though they be as crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 1.18. But think about this. When God looks down from heaven, He expects to see us white as snow, and He sees us dirty as sin, as red as blood. He sees us unclean in this way. He sees us in the exact opposite way of 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. It's a beautiful passage to describe the salvation of the Corinthians. You have been washed. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. Washed, sanctified, justified. But when we're in sin, do you realize we're the opposite of that? So when God sees man with our sin problem, he sees us as dirty, common, and guilty. And that's the problem with sin. That's why Habakkuk would say in Habakkuk 1.13 that the Lord is too pure to behold, the eye, or to behold with His eyes the iniquity of His people. That's a problem. Sin is ugly. It's ugly to God and it's ugly to us. And though it is a universal problem stretching to every man, 1 John 1 and verse 8, every woman, it's something that keeps us at arm's length and then some from the God of heaven. So when we see that God's grace brings salvation to all men, we see that all men then need salvation because sin has reached us all. Number two, when we say that God's grace brings salvation to all men, we're saying that God is sovereign over all men. In other words, this shows the universal nature of God's sovereignty. Because He is creator of all mankind, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, because he is king over all the earth, consider Exodus 15 and verse 11. In a descriptive term of God, the song, the song cries out, Who is like unto thee, O Jehovah, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee? The answer is no one. Why? Because God is glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, ever doing wondrous things. Psalm 89 and verse 7. God is very terrible in the counsel of the holy ones to be feared above all them that are around Him. God is greater than the gods, whatever this earth or this world decides to worship, the gods. But He's also greater than the holy ones, the angels. Those which maybe dwell closest to Him, He is so much greater than them as well. But what about Psalm 108 and verse 5? Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens... And above all them that are upon the earth. You see, God's greatness is not just in His character and person, but in His majesty because He is sovereign over the entirety of the world. Every individual that lives and has lived on this earth, Psalm 108 and verse 5, and above every nation, including our own. Every nation that has ever existed or will exist until Christ comes again, Psalm 113 and verse 4. The Lord is high above all the nations. Looking here both at Israel 
as well as the Gentiles. It's no wonder then that on Judgment Day, all will be brought before His throne. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. That the day of God, he, in that day of God, He will judge the secrets of all men. Romans chapter 2 and verse 16. In summarizing that in Romans 3 and verse 6, that same chapter that teaches all sin and falls short of the glory of God, God is described as the judge simply this way, of the world. That means all, everyone. So when we say that God, God's grace has brought salvation to all men, it shows that God is sovereign over all, that every man is in need of God's sin, that every man is in need of God's grace because of sin, and that God has offered the remedy to everyone. And so number three, we see that bringing salvation, God's grace that brings salvation to all men, shows the universal nature of Christ's sacrifice. In Titus 2, that's the central idea. What is it that redeems me? Sacrifice of Jesus. What is it that makes God the Savior? Titus 2.10, the sacrifice of Jesus. How does God extend His mercy to me? Titus 3, 2-4, through 4, sacrifice of Jesus. You see, God's action of love of mercy, of grace, is seen in Jesus. And it is that sacrifice that covers the whole world. We know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What about 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14? It describes the same action in a very similar way. It says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, for we thus judge that one died for all. And he died, so that we who live should no longer or no longer henceforth live to themselves, but unto him who for their sakes, our sakes, died and rose again. You see, everyone deserved the sentence of death, Romans 6.23, because of sin, Romans 3.23. But Christ died for us in our behalf, exchanging the righteous for the unrighteous, because of his great love, because of the great mercy of God, because of, his great, uh, because of God's great grace or amazing grace. Hebrews 2 and verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, coming to this earth, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus died so that you and I only have to die once. You see, there are two deaths. One is this physical body dying, but the second death, it is an eternal death that lasts forever. It's our spiritual soul there in a place of, of torments or suffering. But there's no need for us to spend eternity apart from God, separated from Him in the darkest of nights and the hottest of hots where there is screaming and wailing and crying and gnashing of teeth, where the, the smell is always the sulfur and brimstone, there's no need for that. Because we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus one time for all time. Hebrews 10 and verse 10. Whenever we train, uh, my primary job is to train uh, preachers, teachers, uh, missionaries, both men and women. Of course, the, the men will, will teach in mixed assemblies uh, there in Singapore. But we teach them usually that you should define your terms when you begin your sermon. 
And our sermon has centered around, or our lesson tonight is centered around God's grace. But we never really defined grace. Usually it's described as, as unmerited favor. I think it's a good way to start. But as we look at God's grace, especially His redemptive grace, the way we most often see it in the Bible, I want to define it this way. God's grace is the benevolent action, or the loving action of God, towards sinful people that provided, or in our case provides, salvation. Not based on meritorious works or works that earn our salvation, but rather that offer a conditional promise to receive the fullness of the blessings of God. Now, I don't know how closely we stick to that 8 o'clock thing, but I've got about a minute and a half by my watch, and my alarm's going off, so I know that we're close to done. But I want to give you just, just, just a few short applications from this text. From Titus 2, 11 through 14, it's certainly a wonderful text, and one that we have not exhausted tonight. But I want you, as we prepare to close, and I believe that um, after our Bible class, there's going to be a baptism, and so uh, maybe you can hang around for just a few minutes longer. But I want to give you three short applications based on our text. God's grace is instructive. As we look at Christ, we learn something. We learn how to be something, someone that God wants us to be. Number two, God's grace is changing. You see, if I look at Christ and I receive the grace of God how I should, I'll never be the same. You see, I'm going to be living like Christ, Galatians 2 and verse 20. My life will be hid in Christ with God. I will die daily, 1 Corinthians 15, 31. And then number three, God's grace is saving. As I look at God's grace, I, I think about, as I see Jesus, how it instructs me. How I see myself, how it changes me. But whenever I see God's grace or think of God's grace, I, almost, I also must look at others and see that God's grace is saving. God's grace calls me not just to look at myself that I might be corrected. Not just to examine myself and not just to look at Jesus, but God's grace calls me to see those around me who are in need of God's grace. You see, if the plague of sin has gone, and it has to everyone, then the offer of God's love is to be carried by His possessed people. That's you and I. The Christian, then, is the, har the, the carrier, the harbinger, the one who hauls around the grace of God, not bestowing it in some way that you and I can, but rather simply showing others how to access it through the cross, that they might be right with God. I don't have a clue how to close this thing. And so I said, do I say a prayer? Do I just leave? Andy said, take the mic and drop it. And then it's like this, so I can't even drop the mic. But I do appreciate your time and attention tonight. They're making their way in from the back, like I said. And so maybe we could just remain, you remain seated if you, um, if you have that time. So I appreciate you all very much. letting the youth come in so they can uh, so they can be a part of this letting the young people I guess you'd say 
Yeah. Yeah, 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 there you go. Okay.